This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. You won't find prepackaged lunches in Ann Cooper's school cafeterias. Cooper, known as the renegade lunch lady, directs Boulder Valley School District's food services. She's replaced processed foods with meals made from scratch, and she hopes schools beyond Boulder will do the same. This month, she starts offering online courses for people who make meals for school kids. And Anne, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. So what's on the menu for Boulder Valley students today? You know, I don't know exactly what's on the menu today, but it very often would be things like oven-roasted chicken or pulled pork sandwiches or street tacos, things like that. Things kids really love, but everything's made from scratch. We have salad bars every day. We have whole grain salads every day. So we really have a lot of wonderful food. And how does that compare to what might have been served a decade ago before you got there? Well, when I got here nine years ago, there were grilled cheese sandwiches served in plastic bags, Extremo burritos, pizza pockets, chicken nuggets, and tater tots. Nothing was made from scratch, and it was almost all pre-processed food. What do you think was the worst thing they were serving in schools back then? Well, in general, it's all this really processed food. I mean, just imagine a grilled cheese sandwich made with white bread with American cheese stuff in a plastic bag, heated in a plastic bag, and given to a child in a plastic bag. That's what we saw in schools across America 10, 15 years ago. So how do you come up with these meals? You know, this is just regular food. There's nothing really fancy about the food we do. It's just real food. Instead of serving chicken nuggets, we serve roast chicken. And in Boulder Valley, it's hormone antibiotic-free. Local comes in fresh, and we roast it. Or we bread it ourselves and then oven fry it. You know, we just make real food. We get 25% of all our food is local. We buy from farmers. It's just real food. And as we mentioned, you're offering courses online for people who prepare um, meals in schools, and it's part of your School Food Institute. Your courses follow USDA standards, and all Colorado school food workers can enroll in the classes free of charge. Um, that's because of a grant of more than $500,000 from the Colorado Health Foundation. This is clearly a mission for you. Can you quantify how much of a difference it makes for the kids who eat your food? You know, when I started the Chef Ann Foundation, which is nine years ago, and we really started trying to help schools segue from highly processed to scratch cooked, and we did that by offering recipes. We started a project called Salad Bars to Schools, and just yesterday, right outside of Washington, D.C., we had an event celebrating the 5,000 salad bars that we've donated to schools mm -hmm. across the country with our partners. But it's, it makes such a difference for kids to get fresh fruits and vegetables and food without all kinds of chemicals that isn't highly processed. When we realize that two-thirds of all the kids eating school lunches every day come from food-insecure homes and that sometimes for these most at-risk kids, this is the only hot meal they eat in a day. And sometimes the food they eat in school is the only real healthy food they ever get. So... This is really important. And the former Secretary of Education, Arne Duncan, I heard him say that if we want to close the achievement gap, we have to close the nutri nutrition gap. And all school districts across the country struggle with 
the achievement gap. So we can make a huge difference in kids' lives and the lives of their families as well. So you think this translates into how they perform in the classroom? I absolutely do. There's not a tremendous amount of peer-reviewed research on this, but we know that hungry kids can't learn and malnourished kids can't think. And even as adults, we know that like when we haven't eaten, we get cranky and we might not think as well. We might snap at people. Well, you know, kids are small people and they're much smaller. They need to eat and they need what they eat to be good so they can perform to the best of their abilities academically and emotionally and intellectually and physically in all ways. Boulder is a pretty wealthy school district. How much more expensive is it to serve these kinds of meals than the prepackaged ones? So Boulder is is kind of a wealthy school district, but school food is dictated by the USDA. And by law, the money has to be kept separately. So the reimbursement rate, the money the government gives myself and other school food professionals around the country, is the same in every single state except for Hawaii and Alaska. So $3.29 is how much I get right now to feed a child a full lunch if they're a free, a free student. But $3.29, maybe you think, oh, I can go make that at home for $3.29, a, a healthy lunch for our kids. But of that... I have about a dollar twenty-five, and this is the the same all across the country. Approximately a dollar twenty-five for food. So there's not a lot of money in the system for us to do this. So how do you figure it out? How do you, you know, healthy food? People say costs more. Produce costs more. You know, you really think about menu mix. I was in hotels and restaurants for my whole career up until going into school food. So we might serve that beautiful roast chicken hormone and antibiotic free and that might cost more than making pasta marinara so in the same week if we serve pasta marinara and you know this beautiful roast chicken when you combine the food costs and divide by two your average can still say low so we work really hard on efficiencies of scale we work really hard on ordering we cook everything from scratch And as you know from going to the grocery store, per pound, chicken nuggets cost more than roast chicken. So we really just try and balance these things out and and come up with a middle ground that we can afford to serve the kids. One of the courses you offer is um, salad bars in schools. You talked about salad bars. And your foundation has been in a partnership with Whole Foods Market and other groups to get more salad bars in schools. What evidence do you have, if any, that salad bars get kids to eat healthier? There's some uh, numerous different evaluations have been done on salad bars, and it shows unequivocally that that when you put salad bars in schools and you have fresh food on salad bars and you pair that with education, that kids eat more fresh fruits and vegetables. And school food professionals from all across the country in a Pew study said approximately 60% of them said that they saw their kids eating more fresh fruits and vegetables with less waste when they put in salad bars. Let's take a break from my conversation with Ann Cooper, who directs Boulder Valley School District's food services. In the last nine years, she's revamped the district's school meals program. You're listening to Colorado Matters from member-supported Colorado Public Radio.
You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Let's return to my conversation with Boulder Valley School District's Ann Cooper. She's taken the school's meal program from processed food to fresh dishes, and she now has a series of online classes that teach schools across the country how to do the same. And and we talked a little bit about this earlier uh, with salad bars, but you can serve healthy meals, but it doesn't necessarily mean kids will eat it. Is there a trick to getting kids to eat what you make? There is. And we actually have one of the courses in our online courses is all around marketing. And we think of marketing as working with kids, hands-on experiential learning, tastings, rainbow days, Iron Chef competitions, as well as marketing and education to parents, community leaders, and, and staff as well. And so that's one of the courses we're offering through the School Food Institute. And I know you mentioned this, but since we're here in Colorado, I wanted to just reiterate that every school food professional in the state can take these classes for free, and it's being paid for by the Colorado Health Foundation. And we're so proud to be partnering them with them to get these classes out there for people all across the state as well as the nation. And the Trump administration wants to ease Obama-era rules that said lunch had to be healthier. It's already made some minor changes. It says the Obama rules take flexibility and creativity away from school food workers. And the rules, the Obama rules, required that school meals had to have less fat, sugar and sodium, more fruits and vegetables, smaller portions. I wonder how these sorts of regulations or how much they matter or are schools moving toward healthier meals anyway? Well, I think the Obama administration, certainly Michelle Obama's cheerleading, as well as, you know, the USDA's real forward thinking on school meals really progressed us. And I think Purdue's, as far as I'm concerned, publicity stunt to roll them back a little bit aren't really making any difference. The things he decided to kind of quote-unquote roll back aren't really making a difference. I think that schools that have been for 10 years now really making progress are going to continue to make progress. But I think it's really ridiculous to say that the rules are taking people's creativity away. I mean, when you look at our menus in Boulder and menus from many school districts all across the country, you see school districts really putting out great food made from scratch, very creative. The guidelines aren't holding back creativity. What they're trying to do is make sure that we serve fresh fruits and vegetables, that we don't serve too much salt, that we have whole grains at every meal, and that we don't serve too much fat. I mean, that is not holding back creativity. That's what we all should be doing every day in our lives. And you mentioned Sonny Perdue. Um, He's the Secretary of Agriculture. Um, But it, it seems unlikely federal funding for school meals will increase under the Trump administration. It could even be cut. And being prepared for financial changes is something you cover in one of your classes. How could potential cuts affect the work you do, and how do you prepare for those? Well, I think if there were to be cuts to the reimbursement rate, I think what we need to do is have really good financial financial modeling in place. And one of the classes that we do in our online courses through the School Food Institute is financial, is all about finances. We go through budgets and meals per labor hour and how much food cost is and payroll cost and how to balance that. So for instance, let's just say that we lose the six cents that was added under the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act. Well, six Under cents Obama, seem- yeah. Yeah, exactly. But And six cents may not seem like a lot, but 
if an apple costs a quarter, then, you know, there's four, you know, it's a quarter of an apple, which over time and over thousands of meals makes a difference. So knowing how much everything costs, really understanding where you can increase and decrease and what you can do for efficiencies in order to balance your budget is really important. And that's one of the things that we're really being able to teach with these classes. If a school wants to make over its meals, what are some of the first steps it needs to take, um, say, in terms of equipment, staffing? You know, there are five main things that every school district has to deal with when they're making change. They're food, finances, facilities, human resources, and marketing. And those five things, food, where are you going to get it? Finances, how are you going to pay for it? Facilities, do you have kitchens or how are you going to build them? Human resources, how do you get your staff trained? And finally, marketing and education, how do you get the kids to eat the food? Those are the things we cover in our classes, and those are the things that we really need to think about when we're making change. And what changes to make first are really dependent upon where you are in the continuum. You know, maybe you have really good financial controls, but you need help with procurement. Well, our classes can help with that. Or maybe, you know, you're not ready to change the center of the plate, but you're ready to bring in salad bars, which is a great first step. So all of these different kinds of decisions are covered in our classes, and it will help school food professionals, advocates, and really also interested parents understand the system better so they Everybody can come together, every single one of us, to make sure that our kids get healthy food in schools. And thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Ann Cooper directs Boulder Valley School District's Food Services. She's also the founder of the School Food Institute, which will offer online cooking courses for school food workers starting next week. Coming up in a bit, a Colorado company that's trying to make money by selling food that would have ended up in the trash. This is CPR's Colorado Matters. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Here's a stunning figure. More than a third of the food produced in the U.S. ends up in landfills. A startup in Colorado is working to change that by finding a market for wasted food. And the founders of Food Maven are getting a big leg up. The state just awarded the company almost $400,000. Reporter Noel Black profiled Food Maven over the summer and begins his story at a dumpster in Colorado Springs. Yeah, there we go. So I'm going to hop in. This is Dan Lewis. He's the president of a new Colorado Springs startup food company called Food Maven. Now 26, Lewis and some of his friends spent the summer after college in 2014 salvaging food like this from dumpsters. Looks like we got some broccoli and apples, some good-looking peppers, a lot of leafy greens that we might not be able to use, but could definitely make a good stir-fry. Lewis fills up a brown paper grocery sack. He estimates that a bag of produce like this would cost up to $50. It was in dumpsters like this that Lewis began to see that there was a much larger problem in the food system. This is not bad food. This didn't meet some type of cut from somebody's standard, or it's just oversupplied and ended up in this bin. This bin represents just a tiny fraction of the 133 billion tons of food that gets dumped into landfills every year. That's according to a 2014 U.S. Department of Agriculture report that finds 35 to 40 percent of all food produced in the U.S. every year gets thrown away. Truth of the matter is it's perfectly good food 
that's just getting lost in the system and tragically ends up as waste when it really doesn't need to be. This is Patrick Boltema, CEO of Food Maven. He and Dan Lewis started the company together two years ago while working with a nonprofit food rescue organization. They were shocked by all the waste they saw. Boltema says they realized the entire food system is designed to create that waste. The only way to always have everything all the time is to dramatically oversupply the system. Grocery stores, says Boltema, are under enormous pressure to remain fully stocked at all times. If customers don't find what they're looking for, they'll go elsewhere. And the only way to make sure there's always enough is to have too much. And so there's product that gets lost just because there's no place to put it, and it's in the way. Grocers and food distributors often send that food to the dump. Lewis and Baltima saw this as an opportunity. They created Food Maven as a for-profit business to distribute the oversupply of food to restaurants, school cafeterias, and other institutional kitchens at half price. As Baltima sees it, everyone wins. And so it really is for our suppliers, it's found revenue for food that they were going to lose, that they were going to pay to dispose of, and for our buyers, it's a great value. Food Maven receives the oversupply on commission. A percentage of anything sold goes back to the original producer. And their ultimate goal is to keep all of it out of the landfill. The way it works is pretty simple. When a grocery store or a distributor has an oversupply, Food Maven sends its trucks out to pick it up. They take the food back to the warehouse, inventory it, and upload the inventory to a website where restaurant owners or institutional kitchens can place their orders. Then Food Maven fills the orders and delivers them. Nina Lee owns 503 West, a restaurant in downtown Colorado Springs. She places regular orders for organic chicken breasts from Food Maven. And we use a lot of chicken breasts. 503 West, like many restaurants, has limited distributors to choose from. That's why, Lee says, she welcomes the variety and prices Food Maven offers. It was by far the best deal. But not everyone's convinced that Food Maven's business model will create healthy competition in the market or address the oversupply problem. You give me something for free and let me sell it for half of its former value, I've, no one makes that kind of margin in the food business. This is Mike Calicrate, a rancher, meat processor, food distributor, and grocer in Colorado Springs. He's also an advocate for local food. And so we've got people who are sort of exploiting a problem, and, but dealing with it in an incorrect way, or maybe from their perspective in a very correct way to make all the money they possibly can for themselves. But it doesn't address the problem. Calicrate wants the food system to move toward a local model of production and distribution that puts more money into the hands of farmers and ranchers. But others, like Doug Wiley, president of the Arkansas Valley Organic Growers Co-op, are taking a wait-and-see approach to Food Maven's model. Well, I say it's a little new, too new to, to really see all the problems that might arise. Wiley says oversupply is a big problem for small ranchers and growers, too. He hopes that Food Maven might open new markets for them. The way I think of it is it's, it's another outlet that I could possibly utilize. You know, I've been just giving it away. Food Maven hopes to go national in the next five years. They'll test their model in a major market for the first time this summer when they open for business in Denver. I'm Noel Black for Colorado Public Radio News. Coming up, a film animated by thousands of oil paintings. This is Colorado Matters from member-supported Colorado Public Radio. 
It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Vincent van Gogh once wrote, We cannot speak other than by our paintings. It was in a letter shortly before his death. A film that plays in Denver this weekend takes those words literally. Loving Vincent is animated entirely with thousands of oil paintings. It took more than 100 different painters to get the job done. One of them is Dina Peterson of Monument outside of Colorado Springs. Ryan Warner spoke to her a year ago. It was just after she had returned from Poland where she worked on the film. Dina, welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. It's a pleasure to be here. So help me understand how 100 or so artists animate a film with oil paintings on canvas. What's the what's the process? It's an amazingly complex process, and yet in some ways um, it, it's simple, too. It's an interesting juxtaposition between technology and things that are not so technical. We would paint in a workstation that they would they had an acronym for it called PAWS, which is Painted Animation Workstation. Okay. This is so, it like a cubicle or something? Yeah, it's a little cubicle, built a drywall. You know, all these little cubicles are in this big warehouse of a studio in Gdansk, Poland. And you have there 115 were, painters in there. Yeah, yeah. There were two other studios. One was in Greece. One was in southern Poland. Um, so we each had a little cubicle with a dark curtain on it because we use a software program that's called Dragon Frame that helps you animate And that's used with a projector that's behind us, and the lighting is set just so, so that each time we paint a frame, um, we then take a picture of what we just painted, and we make an export of it. Um, So is it like oil painting tracing of an image that's already created digitally, or are you originating the image in paint? It's kind of both. Um, We we do have... um, projected images of the actors that were filmed live or in front of a green screen. Some of them were filmed in front of uh, um, Van Gogh's actual paintings being projected behind them. And so we would take these images that they prepared for us. um, They would slow down the the actual movement of the actor so that um, we would paint basically every two frames. So, you know, you're kind of you're kind of tracing, but the projector lies a lot, and there's not a lot of information there about color at all. So you get to add some, I don't know, I guess impressionistic elements. In some ways, although what was interesting about this is um, the whole process was really geared towards mimicking Van Gogh's style uh. and at the same time making the actor look like what he or she looks like. So um, they were very specific um, about what they wanted from us. So we had to really completely get rid of our own style and and really look into painting someone else's style, which was a difficult thing to do as an artist. Could you do a, a mean fake Van Gogh now? <laughs> I thought about that actually. <laughs> like we're creating a whole bunch of little forgers. Right. Um, but we did pretty well with that because we would be actually studying his actual paintings. We didn't have the actual paintings. We had high resolution images of them, although I've seen them in person. And you do, you get down and you zero in on actual brush strokes and what color are they and um you know when he painted he 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 painted i'm imagining just kind of very vigorously and emotionally grabbing paint and and when you study his his brushwork it's several colors on one brush stroke because you know you're not cleaning your palette which in some ways is how i like to paint but when you're trying to reproduce that it's tough because there's a spontaneity there that i feel can't truly be reproduced so once you painted the image would be captured and added, obviously, to the film. Would you keep 
the painting you made? Are that, there are there the sixty four thousand oil paintings up exactly. for sale now? No, no, there aren't because that was the interesting piece of this. We would paint the first frame which was called the key frame or the first frame. We would paint the background. Um, it, it usually had something to do with one of his original pieces. Okay. Like one of my favorite scenes that I did was a wheat field with crows, which is thought to be maybe one of his last paintings done in July of 1890. Um, and then we had the character Armand, who's sort of the main character of the film in there, and he throws a stick and the crows fly away. It's a really cool scene. You start out with the first frame, you paint the the field and the sky, the crows are in the wheat, so you don't see them. You paint him getting ready to do what he's going to do. Um, and then the interesting piece of that is you take a picture of that, and then two frames later into the, his movement of getting ready to throw the stick, I'm scraping him off of that painting and repainting him in a different position and painting all the background stuff that was there when he moved. You have to replace all those brush strokes. And then you take a picture of that and so on. So you basically end up with him in a different place. And then the crows are all in the sky. And so in that way, Same paintings would be reused. Canvas. Yes. Same canvas. Right, right, yeah. right. And did you develop any kind of relationship with the other painters? Yeah, as much as I could. You know, we were awfully busy. We would come in 8.30 maybe in the morning and, and stay there for about 10 hours and maybe a half hour for lunch. I'd get a chance to chat with some of the other artists, all international artists from all over the world. But not as much as I would have liked to because we were working really hard and we were really literally just exhausted at the end of the day. Does your hand get sore? Do your eyes get sore? Yes, both. <laughs> yeah, I tried to get up and stretch during the day and remember to stretch out my hands and shoulders. You tried out for this. Yes, I sent a portfolio. It was just kind of a whim. Um, I'd seen the trailer going around on Facebook. Um, we have that at cprnews.org, by the way. It will give you a sense for the visual, oh, goodness, layering. The It's pretty stunning. It's pretty interesting. Yeah, so you'd seen that and wanted to be a part of it. Yeah, I thought, well, you know, they said they were still looking for artists. And so just on a whim, I sent them a link to my website. And I thought, well, I just didn't think I'd hear anything about it. I figured they were close to being done and... Why would they want someone from Colorado to come over there and help with it? And I got an email early in May that said, we'd like you to come and take a test to see if you'd like to be a part of this. I, apparently, there were over about 8,000 people sent uh, portfolios or websites. So to be chosen from that was pretty, pretty nice. So you went to Poland, not even at the promise of having the job, but of right. maybe having the job. Right. Okay. And then got chosen. Yes. Do you have a favorite Van Gogh painting? And maybe it's not one you necessarily painted yourself. Yeah. Oh, my, I think that's really tough. I do think the Wheatfield with Crows is one of my favorites. There, there was one in the exhibit that was in Denver a couple years ago, and it was just a little painting of some willow trees with the sun coming through behind them. I think that's one of my favorites. So you mentioned earlier that you had to suppress your own artistic um uh, expression in some regards to do this somewhat factory-like work. Has yes. it has it helped you as an artist, though, maybe refine your technique? I think it has. Um, I think as many of us were talking, when we go back home to do our own work, we were kind of worried that this actually might interfere with being able to kind of do our own work again. <laughs> um, I don't think that's the case. I think your painting style is a lot like your handwriting. I just think you can't really change it even when you try. But I think anytime you're painting for nine hours every day, my drawing skills, I think, have 
greatly improved. Um, the ability to match the colors you're looking at and studying the brushwork was amazing. Thanks so much for being with us. It was a pleasure being here. Dina Peterson is a painter in Monument, Colorado. She spoke with Ryan Warner. Peterson was one of more than 100 artists to paint scenes for Loving Vincent. It's the first ever feature film to be fully animated with oil paintings. The film will be playing in Denver this weekend. That's our show for today. Thanks to Shane Rumsey, Brady McNellis, Matt Herz, Stephanie Wolf, and Michelle Fulcher. I'm Andrea Dukakis. This is Colorado Matters from member-supported Colorado Public Radio.